Welcome to the CEC Report. It's the 24th of October. I'm Robert Barwick. And joining me today is a very special guest, Dr. Wilson Sai. Welcome, Wilson. Hello. Okay. In this episode of the CEC Report, I'm going to interview Wilson, who's an APRA whistleblower. And the subject we're going to discuss is Australia's banks are in crisis because regulation is a sham. Now, before we get into that, a couple of things. The Royal Commission deadline is this Friday, 5pm. Wilson, I've got a submission to put in. I think you've got a submission to put in. Um, lots of people have been making submissions. By the time you watch this show, the deadline will have already been passed. So I'm not, I'm not appealing for more submissions. If the deadline's passed, that's, that's it. I just want to make the point that we got, I found out today the Reserve Bank has put in some kind of submission apparently, and the submission amounts to pressure on the Commissioner, giving him the message that he probably shouldn't do anything that would slow the credit in the economy. Now, this is quite big pressure for the Royal Commissioner, right? He's the, the, the powers that be, the vested interest in the status quo, They've, they, they're very clear, they do not want structural separation, etc. And he has to weigh that up, that pressure from them, against the pressure he's going to feel from the public in the form of the submissions that lots and lots of you have put in. Right? So it was a very important exercise to do that. The other thing is, this week there was a, a, um, an apology by the government on the um, institutional child abuse issue, which arose out of a royal commission. That was a very big Royal Commission. One of the um, points discussed as a result of that is um, a lot of the recommendations of that Royal Commission have not been implemented. And that's just something very important to, rec to, to remember. We can't let this Royal Commission process let the politicians off the hook, right? We have to engage with the Royal Commission, that's great, but whether he recommends structural separation or not, is it would be great if he does, but even if he does, there's no guarantee the politicians will, will abide by it, right? So that effort to keep the pressure on the politicians is very important. Which brings me to my second point on this. We had the Wentworth by-election on Saturday. The Liberals have effectively lost. It's not quite formalised yet. Um, there's now a, a sixth independent in the House of Representatives, which means they hold the balance of power. And that is great because four of those six independents are, or minor party people, crossbenchers, are openly in favour of banking separation. The fifth one probably is, and we don't know the new Member of Parliament yet. So what we're going to be encouraging people to do is start contacting all those independents so they feel positive pressure from the public, so that they use their position to make sure the government and the opposition do not get away with either you know, using delaying tactics of the Royal Commission or ignoring the Royal Commission when, when the reports are handed down, etc. That banking separation is put on the table in Australia, right? So we'll put out more details on that. I just wanted to make that point before we get started. All right, let's now talk about, with Dr. Wilson Sai, about how Australia's banks are in crisis because regulation is a sham. So, like I said, welcome, Wilson. Um, before we begin, let's talk about you uh, briefly, your background. Uh, and I like this story, you're an astrophysicist, and the very first time Wilson and I spoke, I made one of those um, throwaway lines about financial reform. I said, Wilson, look, the solutions are not rocket science. And he said, well, as it happens, I am a rocket scientist. And that's true. So Wilson was an astrophysicist. Um, you were at uh, uh, ANU, I believe, 
How did you end up in finance? Well, um, I was uh, in a project to get funding to get uh, one of the first supercomputers for Australian universities. And uh, we come up with all these roadblocks about you know, the uh, relevance of it for the economy. In the mid-80s, there was a lot of talk about Australia being a clever country, sunrise industry, and so on. So, uh, so in order to uh, talk to the economists and so on, I, uh, I took courses in uh, economics, and uh, largely to actually pitch my arguments right. for why we need a supercomputer in Australia. So you learned economics was, to justify why we need scientific research. That's yeah. right. <laughs> and, uh, and from there, um, I went to Sydney. Uh, I taught uh, math mathematics and applied mathematics and uh, finance and economics. And, uh, and one day I was uh, contacted by uh, so-called headhunters, um, because Bankers Trust and uh, Macquarie Bank were looking for people for uh, foreign exchange dealing and funds management. So eventually I got a job with, uh, with BT. So this is, this is the deregulation era of the financial system. This is, the, this is the onset of things like derivatives. And you have advanced mathematical skills. So you're what they would call now a quant. Right? And, and you're the type of person yep. they poached yep. from yep. real science and real engineering, etc., to be able to use the mathematical skills and, to design yeah. their products. As you said, you know, some of the people call us rocket scientists of Wall Street. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, and so we, our skills were in obviously in things like computing, mathematical modeling, and option pricing, derivatives, um, research, and so on. Um, and, and after the, uh, the several years uh, in the uh, industry, I sort of, I was not very happy with, uh, with a lot of scandals that were already starting to appear. Um, there was all this um, uh, Orange uh, County in the United States. There is the... Uh, These are the big derivatives losses that were yeah, starting to erupt around right. the world. And, yeah. um, and uh, Gibson's greeting. And I was expecting that this industry would be uh, fold up, folded up pretty quickly, right. but, uh, but not to be, in fact. And um, so eventually I joined the, uh, the uh, regulators because I couldn't understand why all these things were allowed to happen. And uh, so I spent three years with ASIC and then uh, five years with uh, APRA and then one year with uh, the Australian Treasury with the uh, Superannuation System Review in 2009 and um, now I want to so in, the, in this period especially when you were with APRA um, this coincided with the global financial crisis in 2008 and you and I've talked about this a lot but when that happened what's what I find fascinating about you you thought as a scientist not as an economist and what did you conclude from the global financial crisis as a scientist well you know I learned all this um, uh, theories and I assume they were true. I mean, all this economic theory they teach you at university and all this mathematical modeling, option pricing, I thought they were science, you know, so much mathematics. But when the global financial crisis hit, 
I realized that all the all this uh, formulas, all these things, they were completely wrong, because it couldn't have happened. Global financial crisis could not have happened if everything was uh, correct, you know. And risk management is in fact a science. Risk management turns out not to be a science, <laughs> yes. and uh, and the whole thing was basically to give an aura of respectability to uh, to that industry. And, and that's why I get very uh, anxious about the huge amount of uh, derivatives now floating around in the, in the world. And, uh, and in fact, I think they have great, because the regulators do not understand <laughs> uh, derivatives and they don't know much about it, that I believe that must be a lot of, you know, a can of worms yep. <laughs> in those things. And, and we will see eventually, because, um, because these things can't go on indefinitely. Already, we, we have trillions, trillions and trillions of dollars worth of these things. And uh, at some stage, uh, yeah, they, they, they will blow up. Well, you've heard it there, folks, um, not just from the CEC, but from someone who was with the regulator and has the advanced mathematical skills to understand derivatives, and he's very nervous about them. And so when the government authorities and the regulators profess this um, lack of concern, don't believe them, understand from what Wilson's saying, they're not qualified to be concerned or unconcerned, actually. Let's take a quick break. I just, um, I want to, before we go, I just want to make the point that um, since you've been retired, you've been analysing the financial system. In a sense, you've been inter trying to intervene with your concerns. That's how Wilson came into and um, contact with us. We both made submissions to the 2014 financial system inquiry. And um, in that submission, actually, in 2014, you advocated Glass-Steagall then. And then, of course, we met when you sent a message in support of our campaign against bail-in last year. And since then, Wilson has been doing an almighty amount of work um, for the cause of Glass-Steagall. So let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll get into the meat and potatoes of what's wrong with regulation in Australia. Welcome back to the CEC Report, where I'm having a discussion with APRA whistleblower Dr. Wilson Sy on Australia's banks are in crisis because regulation is a sham. Now let's talk about this regulation issue in, in some detail, Wilson, but I want to make the point, because w Wilson is a whistleblower, he has, he has things he reveals um, to the appropriate authorities about the inner workings of APRA and, and its failings. Um, but due to APRA's secrecy laws, he can't talk openly about that. So we can't talk about that on this show. It's the kind of thing someone like Wilson should be called before the Royal Commission to discuss that, etc. Um, so he has the appropriate protections. But what we're going to talk about is more general, right? And the general observations that will be shocking anyway about regulation um, and how it operates in Australia. Um, now, I've, 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 the first question, Wilson, which comes from, again, our discussions, is... Uh, you know, your, your experience with the regulators, the GFC, you have real insight into this question of regulation. What, in your view, has been the ideology of regulation? Well, uh, everyone been taught at uh, university economic courses about the market, free market, and so on. I think very few people realise, including me, <laughs> until uh, many years afterwards, that, um, that regulation 
the way it's conceived in the early 80s, was actually uh, a disbelief in regulation. In other words, uh, they, the, the fundamental assumption was that regulations was unnecessary. And, and right, right there, that's shocking, but go on. <laughs> and what's more, consumers do not need to be protected. Now, the, the rationale for this is that they, the assumption is the market is efficient and, and consumers or investors are well informed, right? So if consumers are well informed, then all the decisions are made rationally uh, to uh, improve their own welfare. You know, the, the self-interest is at play. And, and that's why occasionally you hear the regulator say, caveat emptor. Right, which means that buyers beware. Let the buyer beware. <laughs> right, you're on your own. And 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 that's why they. Uh, uh, if you look at APRA's uh, key performance indicators, this is a management jargon yeah. for measuring your 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 own uh, performance. How you were supposed to perform while you're there. Yeah. Well, the the organisation itself had had this uh, uh, KPIs, and if you look at it none of those KPIs relates to consumers. They all relate to uh, uh, the, uh, the institutions, the industry, and so on. So, and even with, uh, even with ASIC, which is a bit more consumer-oriented, ASIC's focus is on corporations. There's a corporation's law, right? And, uh, and so, so the, these two regulators are actually not not there to protect the average person, right? It may sound a bit far-fetched. Well, but, but the that, experience but of the Royal Commission has played out exactly what, you, what you've just said is what's been on display at the Royal Commission. Yeah. They haven't right. been protected by the regulators. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, uh, uh, a lot of regulations are merely to harmonise, uh, particularly in APRA, the operations of the industry. So, so this idea of self-regulation is that they, the industry gets together and decides on the rules that they want to uh, abide by. And APRA is effect, if effectively an organiser of uh, uh, the industry. Well, and just say, explain the funding decisions like you've described this to me how APRA decides how much money because it's it's funded by the banks it regulates yep and it's got to decide how much money yep. it changes a year so what you just said relates to that right they, yep. they, they base their how much they charge yep. the banks on what the banks agree to be regulated yep. now the uh, the uh, the APRA for example is funded by the industry uh, the through a levy system the levy the levies are proportional to the size of the institution. And annually, the Australian Treasury um, negotiates with the banks how much funding uh, APRA needs. And so really, and, and, the, and, the, the, and the way that the funding is decided is based upon projects and ongoing activities. So, so if APRA wants to do something new, they would have to uh, uh, approach the banks for permission to do, uh, do to do whatever is new because uh, he who pays the piper calls the tune, right? So the so-called cop on the beat gets yes. the permission first for the people he's policing. Well, 
virtually, you know, <laughs> although not exactly. And the, and the government call this the cost recovery approach to regulation. So all this is consistent with the idea of self-regulation. And uh, so when there's failings, like I said at, at the Royal Commission, but also um, there's this observation that we have these four main regulators and things fall between the cracks. You, your argument is effectively that's intentional. The structure of regulation, the divided structure of regulation, it reflects this ideology of really no regulation. Yes. Uh, uh, one of the statements in the Campbell Report in uh, 1981 was that they believe that, um, that the regulation should be such that the government uh, cannot interfere. So there should be minimal regulation and what this means is a sort of a form of self-regulation and, uh, and minimum government interference. And they have, uh, so therefore they developed this structure where they split up all the different regulators so that, so that they, they can't do everything. I mean, <laughs> in other words, they've got to be very well coordinated to be able to do anything substantial. And you know from working there, they don't coordinate very well at all. No, they, they, they have regular meetings through a, a uh, umbrella institution called the Council of Financial, Financial Regulators. So uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, there is absolutely no coordination whatsoever. You were, you were one of the people, obviously there's plenty of people who work at these regulators who are well-intentioned and do their job. You were one of them. You did your analysis. You put out your reports. Without giving details, what was your experience when you put out a report that was inconvenient for the banks? Well, firstly, I was uh, uh, shut up and, <laughs> and uh, being uh, sort of uh, shunted because uh, I dared to speak uh, without going through their, uh, the media. They, they spend more money on managing the media than they do on research. And, uh, and then when you left, what did they do to the research department? Yeah, well, a couple of years after I left, they closed down the research unit um, on the basis of delivering an efficiency dividend. So this is, so the APRA announces its job is financial stability. That's its, that's its responsibility. It's protecting us from a financial crisis, folks, but it doesn't have a research department that can do the research to see if a crisis may be coming. This is a joke. Um, Wilson, let's take another break. When we come back, we'll talk about Glass-Steagall specifically. Welcome back to the CEC Report, where we're talking with Dr. Wilson Sai about banking regulation in Australia. So, finally, Wilson, let's discuss the real reason we're here, to get Glass-Steagall banking separation in Australia. You, the CEC has been fighting for Glass-Steagall since 2009. You independently came to the view that Glass-Steagall was necessary. Why do you think it's necessary? How do you think it will help? Well, um, basically, the, oligo the oligopoly of the major banks uh, means that there's a, a lot of concentration uh, in various uh, types of financial services, right? From financial advice, stockbroking, insurance, and so on. The, uh, the big bank uses this, this integration to hide a lot of um, cost. You know, they, they, yeah. they pass uh, business from one unit to the other. 
and therefore it reduces competition in any sector in which they're involved in. So if you look at the, uh, the, the, the data, I mean, the major banks account for maybe about 80%, 80 or 90% of the whole financial service industry, right? And in the case of superannuation, for example, the bank is able to extract a lot of cost uh, through this integration uh, uh, structure. And it's not even through the, 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 the declared fees. There's lots of hidden ways, isn't there? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the argument that they present you know, for doing what they do is that, look, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how we uh, do the investing. All, all the uh, consumer or the investor should care about is what they get in their hands, right? Mm. So, so, that, so that's the argument for not being uh, transparent with all the costs and fees. Um, and uh, the other very important uh, uh, reason for Glass-Steagall is that all these derivatives, a lot of them yeah. are, um, are given priority. In other words, because, because if the Australian banks hold some of these derivatives and some of it goes sour, there could be repercussion, right, for the rest of the world through, through all this uh, international trading. And, and the Bank for International Settlement is anxious that this doesn't create what is known as the contagion. Mm. And so they, could, they put high priorities on saving these derivatives. So, so if the banks lost money, they have to get money from somewhere to cover up uh, for the uh, derivatives. In other words, the, 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 the banking, the whole, the rest of the banking system effectively becomes collateral for the derivatives. And that's the danger of bail-in. Precisely. So the, bra the, 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 uh, the bail-in provision provides the legal uh, power for APRA to, to arrange this to happen. So that's why it is, uh, that's why Glass-Steagall is necessary because uh, all these uh, innovative financial en engineering uh, derivatives products uh, should be separated from normal day-to-day uh, you know, -day workings of the economy, which is through the traditional commercial uh, banking system. Now, Wilson, you've spent your career in academia, banking and regulators. For the last 12 months or most of this year, you've been enjoying having fun with me in Canberra talking to politicians on Glass-Steagall. Just briefly, how have you found that experience? Well, my, my view is that the politicians are really clueless about what's going on. Uh, I think partly because the regulators have been able to keep everyone in the dark, including most people. Right, and, and also the politicians. So it is a very dangerous thing that such important things are not even understood by people in charge. And that's why the process, and as you've seen yourself, the process that we're involved in of getting the public to bring it to the politicians' attention, even if you don't feel qualified, they don't know anyway, right? You bring it to their attention and then we've benefited yeah. from that in yeah. our meetings, yeah. right? Wilson? Thank you very much for coming and joining us today. This has been great, very enlightening. We never have enough time, but that's, that's good. We'll put your website up on the screen that people can look at your more detailed stuff. 
But thanks for joining us and thanks for tuning into the CEC report.